Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Andrew Cox of the Foves. We start by talking about Fomatronic, which was meant to be their debut album, but it didn't quite work out. So as I understand it, that was originally meant to be your debut album, but then got split into two EPs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, those... Um... Uh, tight white ball hugger and scissors within they were the two eps in i think 91 and 92 they came out and why did they come out that way was it just financial or was that a decision to kind of split it over like what was the reasoning behind that at the time back then i think it was i mean eps were more of a thing back then yeah absolutely you know we were still still very early in our career and i think we probably thought we'll get more bang for our buck if we get two releases out of the one recording so you know one ep and then another one six months later and um yeah maybe just a bit more airplay a bit more of something to talk about so yeah we ended up splitting it yeah yeah because it's interesting now to hear it as one piece and especially as like a debut album that never was because it's very mature and it also sounds a lot more produced than the albums that followed at least the next two yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was really heavily produced. Yeah, we sort of, um, we, we did work really hard on it. And um, yeah, certainly our, our, our actual debut album, Drive Through Charisma, which we recorded in a house with all the gear set up in a caravan, was a bit more kind of um, just a bit rougher, bit rougher and readier in just the whole approach, I suppose. Whereas um, the two EPs were done in, you know, a really nice studio paradise in Sydney. And then we did, just a lot of work on them in the mixing and um so yeah they did end up sounding quite polished but and, and when you say mature i mean by that stage i mean we've been going we started in 88 so you know we, we were sort of four or five years in so you know we spent those first four or five years just you know writing and killing a lot of songs and um you know trying to hone some sort of direction we were pretty just all over the shop to begin with we didn't have a clue what we we're doing so by then, we'd sort of probably, yeah, start to get a bit of a sense of what we're about. Yeah, and you mentioned that you had a lot of songs that you were honing. The debut album, what ended up being the debut drive through Charisma, went for 67 minutes, and then you got another bonus CD with like 23 songs or something, was it? And none of those songs were on anything else, are they? They're just all just kind of a bonus CD. Yeah, they're all just little demos, and I think there was even a, a, we had a snapshot of Dr... Um, he was recording some chords, a chord progression he'd come up with in his bedroom. And I think his mum knocked on the door. So you sort of hear him playing <laughs> and he stops and he goes, what? And then sort of starts up again. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just, again, just that thing of um, we'd waited so long to put out a record and we thought we were so incredible. So let's just, everything we've got's awesome. We can't, can't leave anything off this. It's just so great. And um, just threw everything at it, which, you know, in hindsight, yeah, it's um, there's a lot, a lot to take in for the uh, for the listener. And you've just revisited Future Spa and the Lazy Highways. You played them live. Yeah, yeah. So we actually did last year was Lazy Highways' twenty fifth anniversary, and then um, so we did do one show, and then thought we'll take it to Sydney. And because we hadn't done the Future Spa thing there, we ended up combining them. So yeah, that just became an epic. You know what's that i think 28 29 songs so and what was it like 
going back and revisiting those albums. Had you listened to them much in the interim? No, I mean, there was obviously, a, a, you know, a set number of songs that we'd continued playing. I mean, yeah. just the ones that were popular. Um, but that left a good 20 or so that we hadn't looked at in ages. So with us, we're really bad at remembering how to play old songs. So that was always going to be the, the daunting challenge would we be able to reproduce them. And um, we kind of managed to. Um, a couple, there might have been a few fudgy bits. <laughs> we couldn't quite remember what, what the chords were or a little bit. But but generally, we got it and um, it came together, yeah, probably a little easier than we thought, actually. How do you feel about those songs now? Oh, I mean, look, I have an affection for them. I, look, people probably roll their eyes when bands say that they think their their later records are better, and I certainly do with us, but I, re- I realise they're two, our two most popular records by a considerable stretch. So, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of affection for it. I don't necessarily, yeah, I, I think we've released better material subsequently, but um, insofar as people are aware of our band, it, it's through those two records, so they're obviously pretty pivotal to our um to our career how early did triple j start supporting you guys was it future spa or was it earlier because you had a bunch of eps yeah funnily enough they played a couple of tracks off our very first vinyl ep so they must have had a record they must have been yeah playing vinyl back then because it didn't come out on cd so that that was this mood is past uh which came out in 1990 and they played um a song called when luck ran out and another one called hi how they gave those both a sort of decent spin and after that they didn't really play us much our first two albums didn't get a lot of play on they got a bit but yeah they didn't really jump on board again in a a sort of a a high rotation way until um until dogs are the best people on on future spa yeah i read that for the young need discipline they waited five months before they put the first single out for that album that's insane yeah it was (laughs) just yeah there's a long catalog of really dumb things that have happened in our career but there's not really an excuse for it because we're on a major label and you, you would have thought they would have had that stuff kind of dialed in. But um, my memory is that they released maybe a promo disc to radio of a song called The Driver Is You, which is the first song on the record, Yeah, um, which didn't get picked up at all. And then, yeah, the first official single, um, yeah, was a good five months later, by which stage... You don't really have that luxury. Like the the album's been out that time. It, it's pretty hard to revive it in terms of a you know a sales venture uh, when you're releasing your singles that far after it's come out. Yeah, you did seem constantly at war with your label during that time. Yeah, we had a lot of yeah. I mean, look, it was a bit of both. We were I don't know. We had a lot of artistic pretensions, and so we did butt up against the um, just the business side of it, I suppose. And and I suppose with hindsight, I can see. I can see more of their point than I could could at the time. You know, I mean, it's an in, you know they'd made an investment in us, and we we weren't really that prepared to bend. We just wanted always wanted to do things our way, and they had their way. So we certainly, yeah, we 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 had our moments of conflict, no doubt. But you delivered a lot of successful singles for them. Yeah, I guess ultimately though, it didn't translate into the sort of sales they needed. You know, I mean, and it's not that our records cost, you know big bucks in terms of what you know bands of the time were spending but i think across our time at polydor they i think well well i know when we finished the, up there we were $150,000 um in arrears <laughs> so yeah although we were you know 
we were, I mean, we had three singles off Future Spa, which got great airplay on, on Triple J, which, you know, obviously by then was national. And so it meant great name recognition for us, but we just didn't, I think Future Spa, which is our highest selling record last time, well, I haven't had a royalty statement in decades, but it, I think it sort of topped out at about 13,000 sales, which is, yeah, which is which pretty meagre, really. Yeah, it seems like if you were actually through an indie label and had the success that just came through those songs being good, it would have been a lot better for you guys in hindsight. Like, I know that's a crazy thing to think. Totally. Yeah, I think so. We were, you know, we were the smallest band on a really big label. And so, yeah, yeah whereas maybe, yeah, on a smaller label, you know, you get more prioritised and it's, it's a bigger deal. So, yeah, look, I'm really grateful for our years on Polydor. It was so unexpected that a, that a, that a label would sort of invest in us in that way but we probably weren't really the right particularly the first two records we put out for them are just so art rock and just so non-commercial that by the time we came up with future spa that had a bit of got a bit of traction um we were kind of you know halfway out the door and the first record though you had it finished completely before they even came on board didn't you we did yes that's right yeah Yeah. so so they obviously wanted it yeah it's it's really funny because I, I still never really understood why they signed us to begin with because we didn't do demos for them or anything. And that first record is a pretty challenging listen. It's long. It's long. It's, you know, it's just not, you, yeah, it's not probably what I, I would have imagined that they would have wanted to release, but they just um, went for it. And it's so long ago to remember, you know, what was going around at the time. And I mean, obviously it was a, it was a sort of a golden age for, for bands of our ilk getting signed to bigger labels, which probably had something to do with it, you know, and um Yeah, and the age of them just signing things because they're going, maybe this is the next Nirvana, maybe this is the Rat Cat. Like so bands like Flaming Lips got signed to majors and bands like you guys got signed to majors. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I mean a completely different time, you know, just I mean I mean record there's always been, you know, obviously there's an element of, of being risk averse from big labels, but much less so back then because and because you should say some some of these bands who didn't sound a million miles from us were making it massive. And um, you know, some bands, you know, were just there was huge bidding wars for them and um because I guess every big label wanted to have their sort of their their alternative in, in quotation marks kind of kind of roster. So your last record was lazy highways through that label but then you did a single that was was it out through festival yeah yeah bigger than tina because it was through the soundtrack so that's a kind of lucky bounce that's so true nathan because we it really could have gone badly for us we'd been dumped by polydor you know it's like where do we go from here and that song just gave us that breathing space because a bigger than tina it 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 got some really good airplay on on triple j and just yeah managed to sort of tide us over to the point to then when Shock, who we'd released our early EPs on, were good enough to take us back, which was, yeah, to which David Williams, who who ran Shock, uh, always be eternally grateful that because we'd sort of, you know, he 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 saw us being a long-term prospect with him and we kind of just dumped him and went with the, with the major label and then for him to take us back for our subsequent few records was just, yeah, amazing. But, yeah, that, that single just was... In hindsight, yeah, really, really important for us because it, rather than us just sort of like, you know, know, what do we do? We just kept us with a bit of a profile. Yeah, well, you mentioned that Shock took you back, but you delivered a bunch of great records for those guys as well. Like Thousand Yard Stare 
Triple J still supported you guys at that point, didn't they? They played that quite a bit from memory. They did, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. did. It was, um, I think, um, give up your day job. Even got in the uh, hottest one hundred somewhere in the yeah, fairly a fair way down the ladder. But yeah, which was symptomatic of the fact that they were still playing us. So yeah, again, that was that was great for us. And yeah, I mean, we were, we were by that stage. Yeah, I really love all the records we did for Shock through that period. Like we were we were really happy with them. And um, in some ways, yeah, it's just you know if we'd sort of if they were the records that we'd started. With Polydor with, maybe it would have been different because I felt that they were, yeah, a notch up. But um, probably by that stage, you know, people had made up their minds about us. So either people liked us and were going to continue with the journey or they probably weren't going to investigate what we were doing by that stage. Yeah, well, saying that, I think Japanese Engines is by far your best record. Like, that's such a cracking album. It's like a every song's like a pop gem. It sounds great. It really jangles. Yeah, those kind of albums, like you guys are still making, like you're still very prolific and still putting out great records. Like you just did a double, didn't you, about, when was it, four or five years ago? Yeah, we did, yeah. No, thanks, Nate. It's really, it's, it's so nice to hear because you kind of feel like, you know, we're working you know, pretty much in obscurity now and, and you sort of wonder, you know, God, is anyone listening to this? So for you to say that is, yeah, it, it, I'm really grateful to hear that because you know we still think we're making music that's worth listening to and um yeah so yeah our most recent release was um driveway heart attack which came out i think 2019 and then um and so late last year we recorded our next record which will hopefully come out this year great yeah and um how's that sound wise sonically because yeah your last album was a double and yeah very i suppose all your albums are very kind of have sparse sounds and jump around and yeah so what would you liken it to if you had to maybe place it somewhere in your catalogue yeah good question i mean look by this stage i mean it's not going to be nothing we put out is going to you know be a radical departure i mean after 35 years not free jazz no no free jazz um, no hip-hop <laughs> i think it's look i've always thought if, if you reduce what we do to just a re really simple sort of description we write quiet songs and we write loud songs. I think we've got that's there's always been that double stream with us. And this album has got that too. You know, we went over, we recorded it in Bali of all places. And um we sort of initially wanted to make it really rock. And so it has got, you know, quite a bit of that stuff. Uh, but then Doctor came through with a few sort of mellower songs as well. So it's still got that touch as well. So yeah, it 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 sort of sits pretty, pretty comfortably in in our you know, in our sonic sort of ballpark, I think. So how is that balance between both your songwriting? Does that kind of change in terms of who's, I don't know, I suppose who's contributing the most or who kind of sets the sound of the album? Does it work in that way? Or do you guys just kind of both show up with songs? Is there co-writing involved? Yeah, there's not, not really any co-writing involved. We just show, essentially, it's just a simple process if we show up with a bunch of songs and all four of us just arrive at, just, we just try and choose the ones we like most. Um, so generally, you know, let's say there are 40 songs to choose from. There'll always be five or six that we're all on the same page with. And then we sort of have to hash out the last sort of five or six. So, yeah, that's probably why, yeah, I mean, that's probably why our, our records do sort of jump around a bit. There's, there's not, just because, yeah, rather than go, oh, look, we're only going to put sort of really upbeat guitar-heavy songs in this record. And then someone will come with a song, and oh, that's just too good to leave off. So, 
yeah, it's just a simple process of of choosing what we like, the songs we we all agree on. And do you ever hold over songs? Because you have a, like like you have a huge catalog by this stage. Are, th- are there songs that have held over from album to album? Like, you know, that's an interesting question because no, we're really ruthless, and and I've like we've talked about this with this record because we had a lot of songs and. There were certain songs that people were really passionate about that didn't make it, and we sort of said, "Look, so in the past, every song that gets put up for a, for a certain project, if it doesn't make it, that's it's over." There's only one song I can ever think of that got a life after the record it was intended for, and that's a song called um, "Back to Being Me," which is on our album uh, "When Good Times Go Good," and I wrote that for our album "Footage Missing," which was six years earlier. That's the only song that I can ever think of that um, has been yeah has been given a second chance so and there are songs like we've got a we've got a b-side record called um prefer others and it's got some songs that doc particularly the ones that doctor wrote around the time of thousand yards dead which i just think are fantastic and and they're on this b-side record and it's like ah, they should have they should have made it you know onto a proper album and so yeah i think this time we were really happy with the songs we had and that we probably will sort of revisit some of the ones that didn't make it on this record for our following one yeah, well, you did, as you said, you went through that period of B-sides where bands were just expected to burn, like, three good songs for every single they released. So if an album's successful, you want three or four singles. You end up burning an album's worth of good material just because you need stuff. Like, it's madness. Oh, true, yeah. I mean, every back then, you know, every once singles became CDs, yeah, we would have the single and always at least four songs on there. So you're right. Like, um, you know, fortunately, you know, we'd generally record... Back in those days, we'd often record sort of 18 songs, even 20, which is pretty stupid, but we'd do that in a big session, you know, when we're recording the songs for the album and then we'd just, the ones that didn't make it would end up going on the singles. But um, that's why we wanted to do that B-side record because we we on we thought we we had a lot of songs that we really liked that just, just ended up in obscurity. And, um, yeah, so now I think now as we're just, yeah, just <laughs> knocking on the door of old age, well, super old age in terms of a band, but old age just as actual people. Um, yeah, we're going to be maybe a little less ruthless in just um, counting those songs that don't make it. When you look back at the entire discography, do you see it in kind of stylistic chunks, I suppose, album to album, or do you just see it as like a big run of songs? I sort of see companion albums, I think. Like I see Future Spa and Lazy Highways as real companion albums. And then the next two, Thousand Yard Stare and Footage Missing, I see as real companions. They are both the two albums where we made probably great the most use of keyboards. And then our two albums, sort of Nervous Flashlights and When Good Times Go Good, I think are, again, complete brother and sister albums. Um, and then following that, we did Japanese and German Engines. Yeah, literally. Yeah, which were actually all recorded together. So they are genuinely sort of companion records that, you know, that was our sort of use your illusion one and two. <laughs> and then a double, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's how that's kind of how I see our discography generally. I feel like, yeah, it has, when I look back on it, and not it's not like it was something probably intentional, but I feel like, yeah, we did go through phases where the, the two records in each of those kind of eras do sort of sit really, really well with each other. Yeah, Future Spar and Lazy Highways as well are both very Australian albums. Big time, yeah. I mean, it was a, sort of a big lyrical theme with us, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, well, look, we, we've probably always been very sort of Australian in our lyrics. Yeah. It really came to the fore through those 
those two and just a lot of the imagery we were using on record covers and yeah it was just kind of a thing for us and so that's definitely a a, a, a strong kind of common theme um, between those two records and did anything in particular influence that in you in terms of like I suppose musical influences or just I don't know literature or was it just because you're Australian yeah I just think that you know growing up and listening to music and it was just I mean people sang in American accents and sang about you know, places in America and obviously then bands like Midnight Oil came along and, you know, were iconically Australian and spoke about Australian issues and things. But it still wasn't a bit, I didn't ever feel it was a big thing in, in Australian music. And for us, it was like, well, we want to sing about places we know about, you know, and and imagery, whether it's, you know, we've often referred, might be like a famous ad that was on TV when we grew up, just iconic things like that, that, that meant something to us, I suppose, you know, there's... um you know, I've never been to New York or, or Memphis, and so there's just not much point kind of singing about that for me. It's like we wanted to, yeah, really ground our lyrics in, in, in stuff that felt true, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, and that comes across. It's it's kind of reminds me of bands like The Go-Betweens where it's this very detail-oriented. It's not jingoistic at all. Yeah, totally. And look, yeah, I mean, I was both, both Doctor and I were – yeah, grew up being huge go-betweens fans, so I'm sure there's definitely an influence there. Right. Yeah, definitely. I remember reading something or hearing you say it once, but it always struck me. You said that dogs are the best people is a song where people think it's cute because it's about dogs, but it's actually also about, you know, it's quite misanthropic. It's about people, like dogs are better than people. Like that's the element that kind of gets overlooked there. Yeah, well, that's 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 what how, you know, I... I that's what I thought the song was about. Well, that's what the song was about. And, um, you know, it was sort of, well, if dogs are the best people, what are people? And, <laughs> and yeah, and I, it's only with hindsight I can see, well, yeah, obviously people didn't get that subtext. Well, it wasn't the subtext. It was supposed to be what the song was about. Yeah, people just latched onto the dog stuff. And I can totally see why. Like, I didn't, I didn't nail what I was trying to get at at all. And it's probably good that I didn't because, um, yeah, I think, yeah, people were more able to relate to a, cuddly little song about dogs and they were you know sort of my misanthropic god people are so bad kind of theme that um that i've pursued so many times in my in my songwriting so it was probably a, a happy accident that um yeah that I, I was uh quite inept in conveying what i what i initially set out to yeah and uh not so happy accident is celebrate the failure just being completely misunderstood which is quite insane and that song couldn't be more relevant now yeah, I, I, yeah, that, I, again, I was, yeah, I thought that was going to be more obvious. I mean, it sort of came out, you know, it was, you know, the the the, the Republic referendum and everything, and um, yeah, just I remember people saying, oh, it was about the Sydney Olympics, and yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, and I, I couldn't, I just didn't get it. Like, I mean, firstly, the, from my memory, the Sydney Olympics were quite a stunning success, but it had nothing to do with that at all, and. Um, yeah, I just thought, I mean, it had really overt references to black armband, a view of history and all these things. And, yeah, for some reason it didn't really, didn't get any traction. Um, so. Look at the wrong kind of traction. It was like, yeah. there was nothing coded about it, though. You say, like, the lyrics are played as day people are going, it must be about the Olympics. Yeah, thanks, Nathan, because I didn't think there was. And I thought it was quite direct, yeah. But um, for whatever reason. Look, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think 
look, we've always struggled with this thing where, and it, it does sort of trace back to, well, it's not, it's a dual thing. I mean, dogs are the best people being our, you know, far and away most well-known song and probably the way we've presented ourselves a lot of times over the years in that, yeah, I mean, people have always seen us as a lighthearted, jokey kind of band. And that that's probably the, that's the thing that's probably stuck in our core more than anything because it's not real. I mean, although we, We've never been serious in, hey, look, we're serious rock stars. I think our music is is actually quite serious. It has, you know, a lot of elements of humour to it. But, yeah, so I think that things like Celebrate the Failure getting misunderstood is that people are always just looking, oh, the, the jokey phobes, where's the gag? There's obviously a gag here, you know. Um, and, you know, well, no, there wasn't really meant to be, but um, people took it that way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like, people seem to kind of assume you guys are closer to, like, tism or something. Yeah, which which I, you know, and, and not dissing tism at all. No, it's just not the same. Yeah, um, I just don't, yeah, I don't, I think that, I mean, for instance, somebody like Nick Cave has a lot of humour in his work, you know, um, but he's not seen, you know, he's still seen as a very serious songwriter. And um, so, yeah, it's just, I think we've really found it hard to get people to to sort of see those that we can have you know those sort of disparate elements in in what you're doing and still be sort of you know i think you know overall our material is really downbeat you know it's not jolly and um jokey at, at all um but um the tag stuck with us well i would align you with paul kelly he has plenty of funny songs but he is like by and large kind of a downbeat singer songwriter who sings about the Australian experience like that's yeah. what you guys do yeah no yeah no again yeah I, I I completely agree yeah I think you can um yeah it's not I mean people don't want to hear you know us just being miserable all the time either you know so um and that's part of part of the art of songwriting is just you know cut you know trying to sort of cover all of those emotions and, and styles so um, but yeah, I, I fundamentally see us as a, as our music is is really serious. That was Andrew Cox from the Foves, and they're not really promoting anything at the moment. So I'll do some promo for them. Get the Fomatronic record on vinyl for the first time. Together for the first time on Cheer Squad Records and Tapes. That's cheersquadrecordstapes.bandcamp.com to pick that up. And if you're a Foves fan, listen to Foves Are The Best People. That's a podcast that goes really deep. It goes track by track through their entire catalogue. So that's a real deep dive. Yeah, it's going to be the, it's going to be the dedicated Foves fan that follows that podcast the whole way through. <laughs> so if you're the dedicated Foves fan, check out Foves Are The Best People. And my guest next week is Jody Phyllis of The Clouds. Until then... Thank you.